0: Hi, this is David Bedford, Beatles author and historian from Liverpool, England. Going to be talking about all of my books, my YouTube, my social media, my website at davidabedford.com. But most importantly, my conversation with Rick Flynn. I'm looking forward to this so much. You're listening to Rick Flynn. With a shout out from London town, it's Rick Flynn Presents... Now, ladies and gentlemen, your MC for the affair, Rick Flynn.
1: Well, hello, everybody. Come on in. We are going to go over to the UK right now, and I am delighted to have with me a gentleman whose original research that he has done has uncovered people, stories, and events that no other author or historian has discovered. His name is David Bedford, and I am delighted to bring him on. He is an expert on the fab for the Beatles. David, I, I, I'll tell you what, that we had tornadoes in our area yesterday, and they downed trees, and, and trucks have been out, and chainsaws have been going. It ripped whole whole branches off of fully mature trees. Everything's been going wrong today. But thank God we have a connection to the UK today. Thank you for your patience.
0: Oh, not a problem. It's an absolute honor to be on here. And the Thank you for that introduction. I hope I can live up to
1: that. (laughs) You know what? It is a delight to have you because I was around as a child. I was living with my parents, probably, I don't know what I was. It was 1964, 1965, but let's just say I was still a minor. I was a a young Mm -hmm. kid in junior high school. Junior high school over here would be 7th, 8th, or ninth grade, prior to moving on to the main high schools, which would be 10th, 11th, and 12th. So I was in junior high school, and the Fab Four appeared after they arrived in the United States from England. I remember the plane landing. I remember the photographs of John and the band holding their their airline little satchels that the airline must have given them. You remember that at the top of the plane steps before they were walking down. And then we had the appearance on the Ed Sullivan television show, which basically had more rating than probably any other TV show that we could. I don't know of Mm -hmm. another one that had a higher rating than that. It made history. It changed the world. And David, somehow after that, you got fascinated with the Fab Four and Beatlemania, and you've taken it to a completely new level with your research. So come on in and tell the people both in the UK and in the USA and the rest of the world what is happening with you and Beatlemania of late.
0: Well, um, so to put it in timescale, so as you're saying, that the Beatles were on the Ed Sullivan show in February 1964. I was born on the 1st of June 1965, so the year after Ed Sullivan. One of my early Beatles' birthday presents was Sergeant Pepper, which they very kindly brought out on my second birthday, um, which is obviously was especially just for me, as we know. I, I'm almost one of the Beatles. Um, and then I grew up in the Dingle area of Liverpool, which is where Ringo starts from. Uh, And literally, he came out of my back gate at the bottom of Madryn Street where Ringo was born. And his uh, primary school, or elementary school, as you'd know it, of St. Silas, is also the school that I attended. So I started there in 1969 till 76. Then I went to high school over here. And when I first got married, we lived two streets up from where Ringo grew up. And then we thought, uh, wife and I, let's move somewhere else. So we moved to buy uh, a place you may have heard of called Penny Lane. And we lived just off Penny Lane for over 30 years now. And to keep the Beatles connections going, we got three daughters, all born in the same hospital as John Lennon, all went to the same elementary school as John Lennon and George Harrison, uh, Dovedale Primary School, where I'm still chair of the Board of Governors there. So I've literally had the Beatles around me my whole life. Um, I got into them through learning guitar when I was about 14 years old. The first music book I got was The Beatles Complete, uh, which I've still got 40-something years later. And the music was always there, but I was off you know, into the, the world of work and they were just still fun, fun group to listen to. Loved the music. Um, it was back in 2000 when I really got into them when we were helping at Dovedale School where my girls were and trying to raise money for the playground. And we put out an appeal and Yoko Ono was the person who responded to the appeal. And Chicani donated thirty thousand pounds, which paid for everything we needed. Has visited the school on a number of occasions, and so I thought that would be a good story that Beatles fans needed to know. And it coincided with me being signed off work uh, with illness, and eventually I, I was signed off permanently. Was wasn't able to go back to work. Um, diagnosed with fibromyalgia and osteoarthritis, and so writing about the Beatles became my therapy. It became my thing to do. And I started writing for the London Beatles fan club and then helped form the British Beatles fan club Writing like, for the magazine. And I just started thinking, well, I've had the Beatles around me all my life. How lucky am I? I mean, you've got the amazing memory of being able to remember seeing them on the Ed Sullivan show. And I think, well, how many people, maybe in the States, wherever else in the world, would love to come to Liverpool and to see where the Beatles came from? So I thought, well, I'll make a list of all the places and go and take photos. And then I started interviewing people, people who knew the Beatles personally, like John's first group, The Quarrymen, Pete Best, the Beatles uh, drummer, Alan Williams, their first Bounder. And I just kept interviewing more and more people. And I thought, well, surely. I'll go and read a book on the Beatles and Liverpool. And apart from a guidebook, there was nothing. And so it took me nine years to do, but I actually ended up publishing the book, "Liverpool Birthplace of the Beatles, which is still the only major book just about Liverpool and the Beatles. And for me, my level of contentment was seeing my book on the shelf of a bookstore in Liverpool. And when I'd seen that, I was quite content. Little did I know what would happen to me. That was the end of 2009. Since then, I've now published, um, I've either authored or co-authored eight books on the Beatles, um, of varying subjects. Um, I've got to work, uh, on a book with Hunter Davis, the official Beatles biographer. I've met so many people connected to the Beatles and I think maybe it's my love as a historian. I like to get to the truth. And one of my friends nicknamed me the Beatles detective. He said the way I forensically examine different moments in, in Beatles history, is exactly like, uh, you know, I was a police officer. And so that's what I like to do. Um, I find it fun. I enjoy it. And so, yeah. All these years later, this is what, 22 years after I started on this uh, second part of my life. um, I've got all these books getting published, others I'm working on. Um, I was the historian and associate producer on a documentary called Looking for Lennon, which came out in 2018. It's been sold all around the world, um, big sales in the US, which tells the the story of John, his uh, his birth, his traumatic childhood adolescent years and we told that through people who knew john lennon personally so again these are people i got to meet over the years so i just consider myself a very privileged beatles fan who's able to share the knowledge and everything else that i find with other beatles fans so that is sort of me um alongside that Um, I'm also a Beatles tour guide, so I take people on Beatles tours around Liverpool as well, which is great fun because every one of those is different because everybody's got their own Beatles story. So apart from that, I've got nothing else to do. How's that?
1: Let me tell you, I have a couple, a married couple that have been married for years. They went to vacation in, I don't know if it was Liverpool or London. Forgive me for not knowing that, But they came back to the (laughs) USA and they told me, we took a Beatles tour and we took it. And the person that narrated the tour was one, a, a gentleman who was one of their early chauffeurs that drove them. Are you familiar with that individual and who that could be?
0: That would probably be Al Thichnall. Um, yeah, ALF used to drive them around. Obviously, they're going back quite a few years uh, when that would have happened. Um, the yeah, ALF used to do some tours around here about 20-something years ago.
1: Very, very well. And they absolutely loved it. Now, on the Yoko Ono donation, was that for a mm. t- children's grammar school What was the donation benefiting again? I know, I believe you said it was a school. What type of school was this?
0: Okay, so it was an elementary school over here called Dovedale Primary School, uh, which is where my three daughters were attending, and we were trying to raise money to improve the playground, and so we put an appeal out. It got into the national press because both John Lennon and George Harrison had attended that school. And Yoko was the one who responded to our appeal, asked us how much money we needed. And we'd done a budget for about 26,000 pounds. And she said, well, I want to give you 30,000 pounds, pay for everything you need to do, have some money in the fund as well. Said because John loved his time at Dovedale. He didn't really enjoy Quarry Bank, his high school, but his primary school at Dovedale, he absolutely loved his time there. And so she was quite happy to give us the money. Um, And she's given us further money uh, as well. She's visited the school on uh, a number of occasions. I met her actually in uh, the childhood home that John grew up in with Aunt Mimi. Again, when that house came on the market, Yoko bought the house and gave it to the National Trust to look after. So I met her there with some of the children from the school. And and she was absolutely wonderful with the children. She really was.
1: People have said this about Yoko. They have said that about Yoko. I don't want to get into any of it. But what I would like to say is that she was under no obligation, zero obligation to donate two two cents of her money to the cause, which she did. And she stepped up in her husband's name and did it. And I don't care what anyone says. The woman is to be commended for that right there.
0: And that's why I wanted to write that article. And it was the first thing I ever wrote about the Beatles uh, for the London Beatles Fan Club magazine. I thought, you know, I've read so many stories about her, and people say incredibly horrible things about her. And exactly as you've said, she didn't have to do that at all. You no, know, She hasn't had to do a lot of things, but she has given so much support to Liverpool, so not just to our school. Um, we had a biannual. Um, arts competition. She always submitted something there. She would donate some things uh, to sell, all the money go into charity. She doesn't have to do any of this, but she has done so much for Liverpool, um, and so I, I think she should be commended. And whatever people think of her, of her role in breaking up the Beatles, which is very contentious, what I think was she was the only person on this planet who understood John, Lennon. and I think John was the only person on this planet who understood Yoko, and. No matter what anyone anyway, trying to say, they loved each other, they understood each other. And yeah, she she's been very generous.
1: I or anyone else on on the the history of this planet that we live on have no right and no moral obligation to tell anyone who they should fall in love with and who they should not fall in love with. If it was good enough Correct. for John Lennon to say, I love you, I want you as my lifelong soulmate and wife, then you know what? That's good enough for me. God bless both of them, and I hope they were happy until some mentally deranged person ruined it, and that individual, to the best of my knowledge, he's still incarcerated, and he'll never more than likely see the light of day society will not do does not want that individual out walking the streets. And you know what? I don't blame them.
0: Yeah. And, and I'm so glad you didn't mention his name as well. I will not. I will not promote him.
1: I will not promote anyone again. like that. No, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, you're good. listening to David Bedford, David a as in Adam bed Ford bed. Like what you sleep on. Ford, like the car that we drive, some of us, davidabedford.com. That is the website. This man's original research has taken the Beatles and uncovered stories and events that no other author or historian has discovered. And David, if you don't mind, I would like to start with one thing that, I think the whole world is confused about until your your research um, took it in a new direction. We all know that Ringo Starr was not the original drummer for the Beatles when they were playing at the Cavern Club before the, in Liverpool before they were discovered, back when Brian Epstein was managing them. That drummer was Pete Best. Now, Pete Best, the world is under the impression that the Beatles, or specifically, I imagine it would be Brian Epstein, their manager, fired Pete Best for whatever reason. And you're saying that in your research, you found out something different. Please relate that to me and the public because I am confused. Did I hear it wrong? <laughs> Did the world hear it wrong? Tell me the truth about Pete Best. <laughs> there we go.
0: Yeah, so this has been the story that's fascinated me from the early days of, of research. Um, for my first book, Liddypool, I interviewed Pete, and I've got to know him. I've seen him many times over the years, and he very kindly wrote the forward to my first book as well. And I hear so many people saying, and I had one just the other day He was saying, Pete Best was a crap drummer. Um, he, he was useless. It, there was no point in him being in the group. He couldn't do anything. And I think, like, so there's two issues going on. One, was he a good drummer? And secondly, what happened to him? So for a book that I did with uh, my friend Gary Popper called Finding the Fourth Beetle, we looked at just the drummers. And again, that's one of those trivia things. If you had to name all the drummers from 1956 to 1970 who played with the Quarrymen and the Beatles, how many can you name? Well, I've got twenty-three of them. Oh so no. will Keep your mind ticking over for a moment. <laughs> but the, the main guys are Colin Hanson with the Quarrymen, Pete Best for the two years from '60 60 to '62, and then Ringo. So what I did was because I'm not a drummer, I, I play guitar, bass, I play uh, piano, can't play drums. So I got independent drummers to listen to Pete Best and say, you know, on the recordings, rate him. What was he like? And honestly. I uh, had one who's a teenager, a guy my age, and someone who was in a Merseybeat group in Liverpool. And they all came out with some amazing comments about how good Pete's drumming was, which surprised me. Um, so happily, I can say Pete Best was a great drummer, as well as those I've spoken to other musicians who played with him. And for what they were doing, the Beatles at the time, they were a rock and roll covers band. And as John Lennon said, there was nobody to touch them when the Beatles were in their leathers, and they were playing the halls and clubs in Liverpool and Hamburg. That's when the Beatles were at their best. George Harrison said something similar. That's when the Beatles were at their best playing live. At that time, Pete was the drummer. Now, Pete actually played more hours live with the Beatles than Ringo did. Because, of course, when Ringo joined, all their shows were like, you only play for like half an hour. In Hamburg, they're playing six hours and more a night. So we deal with that one. Even if people don't like it. The independent objective truth is Pete Best was a great rock and roll drummer. We'll then, get on to Ringo in a moment because Ringo, for me, is one of the greatest ever drummers and is still underrated. Um, and that's, that was the whole purpose of the book was to say that as well. Then so what, what happened, happened to Pete? Yeah, what happened? Why did he depart? No, it, it's amazing. When you look at a Beatles history, you can pin down any moment in Beatles history and you can have. From the eyewitnesses you can easily get 95% of the truth. Funnily enough for these couple of months in the summer of 1962 there have been so many different versions and myths and revisionist histories being put out there just to confuse everybody and that's why it took so long to understand what happened. Now if you believe that I call it the, the Disney-fied cuddly mop-top version which is Pete was a terrible drummer and it was always going to be Ringo who was going to join the Beatles. That's not how it happened at all. People say looking back Now, John Paul and George at different times said, oh, Pete was a crap drummer or whatever, just to say he was no good and Ringo was was the greatest. It didn't happen like that. I went for the evidence, not the emotion. There's no criticism of Pete's drumming until the 6th of June, 1962, when George Martin has brought the Beatles down to give them an audition to see if they're good enough for a record contract. They get put through the paces by uh, a guy called Ron Richards, who's producing the session for George Martin. At the end of the day, George Martin says to Brian, okay, I'll have a think about it. If I offer you a contract, what I'll do is I'll bring in a session drummer. Now, that's fair enough. That, that was standard practice back then. But Brian was a record retailer, not in the music business. He goes to John Paul and George and says, if we get the contract, and nothing guaranteed yet, but if we do get it, George Martin doesn't think Pete's good enough to play on the records. Well, he got John Paul and George, these three young men. This was their last opportunity. Every other record company had turned them down. So they say, well... If we get this contract, if the producer doesn't think Pete's good enough, we're going to have to replace him. And so that's the decision. They decide they've got to replace Pete Best. This is where it gets nice and complicated. And I'll, I'll do this as briefly as I can. I interviewed Brian Epstein's lawyer. And I said to him, okay, this has happened down at MI. What did advice did you give to Brian? And he said, I said to Brian, you can't sack uh, Pete. And this, when we had that conversation, I said, well, why couldn't Brian sack him? So Brian didn't employ him. Remember, the management contract was the Beatles employing Brian, not Brian employing the Beatles. I thought, well, of course, it's obvious now. We were looking at that one the wrong way around. Brian's got no power to, um, to sack any of the Beatles. He wasn't employing them. They were employing him. What I also found was at the end of 1961, John, Paul, George, and Pete had signed a partnership agreement. So in UK law, you cannot sack a partner. And this is what Brian's lawyer said to him. He said, John, Paul, and George cannot sack him. You would have to dissolve the partnership, draw up the accounts, and then start again. They didn't have time to do that. So they had to find a way to convince Pete that he was being sacked without sacking him. So all these years when we've been told that Pete Best was sacked, in terms of the law, he wasn't. So Brian called him into the office. And when we look at the accounts of Brian and of Pete, similar thing was said. The boys want you out. That's how Brian always referred to, to the Beatles, which in legal terms is your fellow partners want you out of the partnership. And then Brian said, it's already been agreed that Ringo is going to join on Saturday. At no point did Brian say that you're sacked because you couldn't sack him. But by saying the others want you out and you've they've got a replacement in, you're 21-year-old Pete Best. What do you think? Well, I've been sacked. So in terms of the law. Pete wasn't sacked. So even though they want to kick him out of the group, he's still a member of the Beatles. By the management contract, Brian still has to provide work for Pete, so he tries to place him in another group, but it's a group he would never have joined, it was just a couple of kids at the time. So Brian gets his mate Joe Flannery, who's a promoter, who's putting a band together called um, Lee Curtis and the All-Stars. He gets Joe to invite Pete to join Lee Curtis and the All-Stars as their new drummer, as Pete agrees to join that other group. In legal terms, Pete quits the Beatles. So basically what they've done is, Pete was never sacked. They had to trick him into thinking he was being sacked. And then him, by joining this other group, that's him out of the partnership of the Beatles, and they could carry on. And in
1: 1961, Pete Best, the original drummer, he signed a legal partnership agreement, you're saying, with McCartney, yep. Harrison, and Lennon, stating yep. that he is a... A, a what? A member of the Beatles just like they are. And that is the reason yeah. why they couldn't sack the man.
0: That's right. Exactly. They were all partners. And there's a very good parallel in, in modern times when the Eagles got back together and they decided they going to go on, on tour again. It was agreed that Don Henley and Glenn Fry, as the two main guys in the Eagles, would receive more than the other members. Everybody was happy, apart from Don Felder, the guitarist. He wanted to hold out for more money. So Don and Glenn sent their manager, Irvin Azoff to go and take Don out and sack him. So Irvin Azoff takes Don Felder out and says, "Uh, you're sacked from the Eagles. Well, Don had the good legal advice because he was an equal partner in the Eagles. And I think it took him something like five or six years to resolve that on the steps of the court. And it cost the Eagles a few million pounds because you cannot sack a partner because you're an equal member. Now, in Pete's case, he would not have been entitled to millions because they hadn't made their money yet. But, yeah, with better legal advice, he could have certainly have made a decent claim. But his lawyers tried to sue Brian for wrongful dismissal. Well, that was easy enough to send back because Brian couldn't have dismissed him because he didn't employ him.
1: That is uh, uh, <laughs> that's the first I have ever <laughs> heard that story. So, Pete Best, you might as well call it, was removed from the ban. Can we call it, uh, well, I, I don't want to get into... I was going to say trickery, but let me just say he joined the other organization, Pete Best and the All Stars, I think they were later called. I remember him going yep. out with some with a with a title of a group called that, but whatever yep. they were called back then, by him rejoining some other band, that made it legal that they could put Ringo in there. Correct?
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: that's right. All right, now take me down to the um, stories that everybody has heard regarding the fact that the women, the ladies, they loved Pete Best. Oh, he was a hit with the women oh, yeah. during the Beatles' early days in Liverpool, wherever they went, in Hamburg. The girls loved him. And Okay. people say well the other the other members got jealous because the women loved Pete now is that true or is that a bunch of baloney
0: um the, the, these are the bits where when I think of okay what were the reasons for getting rid of Pete and I can imagine the conversation after they've had that news from George Martin that um he won't use him on the records that's the primary reason for getting rid of him you then have John Paul and George and Brian sitting around saying okay, can we justify doing this? Now, Brian was getting nagged by Pete's mom, Mona, and he didn't like that, so he thought it'd oh, be good to get Pete out of the group. Paul McCartney's dad had complained that Pete was trying to get a lot more attention onto him as opposed to Paul. And so there's an element of that. There's lots of different little primary, sorry, secondary excuses people brought forward, none of which on their own are good enough to say you need to get rid of him. Because when you think about it, if one of the members of the group is bringing lots of fans in to see the group that's a benefit to the group and let's be honest with four of them in the group there were plenty of girls to go round. you know that there's a time within the first like three or four years of ringo joining the beatles you know he was getting more fan mail than the others you know and as he's rightly said he's not the best looking guy in the world there were more than enough to go around so yes pete was very very popular girls would sleep out in the garden waiting to see him there were protests after they got rid of pete from the beatles um, not just not just from the girls, but especially from the girls, yeah, because they absolutely loved him. But, yeah, they all looked good, and they all got their fair share of the girls. So that in itself isn't a good enough reason to get somebody out of the group.
1: I totally agree with what you just said earlier. I don't care how many women loved Pete Best.
0: If they did,
1: and let, I know it's impossible, but let's just say <laughs> millions of them came to him. <laughs> even though they hadn't made their money yet and hadn't had their big fame yet. But let's just say they did. That is a plus for the group. If he attracts the women, he's helping all four of them.
0: Yeah, exactly right. So it's it's not a good enough reason on its own to say, oh, he's bringing lots of fans and let's get rid of him. It doesn't make sense.
1: No, it does not. Now, tell me, Ringo comes in there and he starts playing drums And they record a record called Love Me Do in the studio. Love, Love Me Do. Everybody that knows anything about the Beatles knows (laughs) Love Me Do. Tell me, why did they insert another drummer? Was Ringo having problems with that particular song? Or George Martin didn't like how he was playing that particular song? Or that it is widely known that the studio recording of Love Me Do is a different drummer. Explain that to me, if you will.
0: Of course. So on the first audition on the 6th of June, 1962, one of the songs they um, did a test recording of was Love Me Do with Pete playing drums. They were trying a new arrangement, and they all made an absolute mess of it. But of course, the drums stand out because they just lost the rhythm part way through. So George Martin had said to Brian um, when he sends the contract through which was the end of, of July 62 he'd made some suggestions on what to do with the song. He'd also sent them another song, How Do You Do It which of course was later released by Jerry and the Pacemakers. He sets um, a date 4th of September to go down to EMI Studios uh, and to get together again. So in they walk and they've got a different drummer and George Martin says, hang on, who's he?" last time you had a different drummer because because session drummers were used all the time he had not suggested at any time you know no get get rid of pete you got to replace him he was just saying he'd use a session drummer so he was shocked when they walked through the doors with ringo so they had to explain that so that that day was let's get together and run through the suggestions that george martin had sent to them to work on um love me do have a go um, how do you do it and so they go through these and no, we we've got the acetate recording. Of How do you do it? Which is, which is good. I mean, they do a good job of it, but their heart's not in it. But they're quite determined. They want their own songs on the record, so they go through "Love Me Do" with their with their changes, and they do it something like seventeen takes and just going over it and over it again. And they put it down onto acetate so George Martin can take it away and have a listen to it. He listens to it and thinks, yeah, Ringo's drumming is not up to it. He's still going to go with his original decision from June, which is he's going to bring in a session drummer. So he sets a recording date for a week later, 11th of September, 62. And he gets Ron Richards to call up one of the regular session drummers, Andy White, to come in and do the session. Now, Andy White, again, is one of those guys I've interviewed. And he said he got the call midweek and was, was told, right, in a few days' time, you, you're going to be recording with this group called the Beatles from Liverpool, of, who, of course, nobody had heard of. And so he turns up on the 11th of September. He's setting up his drums. in walks John Paul George and Ringo. Nobody had thought to mention to Ringo that he wasn't going to be playing the drums, so he didn't take that too well. So they, they go through the session, and it doesn't take Andy White long to work out the song, and they do recording of um, Love Me Do. They do PSI Love You, which becomes the B-side, and they have a, a go-through Please Please Me, as well now the way you can tell the difference in the tapes is on the 11th of september andy white's version you can hear uh, a tambourine and the tambourine is played by ringo and so you've got ringo's version from the week before and then andy white's version and the drum is a bit brighter it's not a massive difference but it's it's a bit brighter a little bit quicker by andy white and you got the tambourine with percussion and so that sounds the best mix and this is where Ringo for years, in fact, all of them were saying, you know, Ringo didn't drum on the first single, but there was a cock at um, at Parlophone Records, because instead of releasing Andy White's version, they released Ringo's version as the single. Right, Par- it, it Parlophone, to...
1: Parlophone Records yeah. was the company that released the initial Beatle recordings, right? The first record yeah, company yeah, they, did, they had.
0: They, they, and you're
1: yeah, saying Love Me Do, when they released it, was actually Ringo playing that.
0: It was. That was the test recording from the week before. And they'd obviously mixed them up. So when the single came out in the UK on the 5th of October, 62, it was Ringo's version. But the Beatles said for years that Ringo didn't play on the first single, but he did, but not by design. So after that, when the album came out, In, uh, was it March 63? The album version is Andy White's, and every subsequent release was Andy White's version, and they actually destroyed Ringo's master copy, um, I think, towards the end of 1963, so that couldn't be released again. So actually, by error, Ringo does actually play on the first Beatles single.
1: Now that's amazing. The acetate, ladies and gentlemen, is a temporary copy of a disc, which you could actually place on a record turntable and put the needle down and you can play it, but it is not the vinyl record that people purchase at the record store. And acetate is something which they quickly get out so that you can have something to go home and, and hear the record before the record is released. Am I telling them right, David?
0: Absolutely right. Yep. That's it. It's, it's something that other record producers use to do a test recording, so they go away and have and think, okay, what will it likely listen like when you stick it on the turntable? What when it comes out as the vinyl finished record, they've got a pretty good idea what the sound uh, would be.
1: Exactly, it will not last in length of time anywhere near what that black. Uh, record album, you would buy the vinyl record. That'll last uh, more plays on the turntable. The acetate has a limited number of plays, but it does an excellent job at letting the artists at that time take the record home, put it on the turntable and play it so that they can get an idea of what the real record when it's released is going to sound. And so they had the acetate of Ringo playing Love Me Do, which was destroyed. You don't know who destroyed it or, or no? Is that a mystery?
0: Uh, they're both just at, at EMI when they're going through because obviously they've made the mistake. They corrected the mistake with future releases, but they just wanted to make sure that it didn't happen again like that. So that always Andy White's version would be the one that was released.
1: Right. And capital EMI was who the Beatles later went with after Parlophone. They were a capital uh, recording artist group. And in the United States, we had many others that were, but nobody as big as the the Beatles, indeed, I would say. And then later on, what was it uh, during the—and this is early Beatles now, not not much later— Back during the era when they had been discovered, and you remember when they were wearing those collarless suits, you remember that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. During that time, on that tour, nationwide or wherever it was, I don't care if it was nationwide or European only, it makes no difference, but Ringo was put down because of medical problems. And they had the tour underway, and tickets had been sold, and women and men were lining up to get the tickets. I'm sure it was sold out. And Ringo could not play because he was in the hospital, I believe, having an operation or something, and they brought in another Drummer who actually had one of those collarless suits, just like the rest of the boys had. He matched them in appearance, and he played. And they used him on the tour for a couple weeks at least. Who was that gentleman? And do you know anything about him?
0: Oh yeah. So this was June 1964. So it was after they'd done uh, Ed Sullivan. This is their first ever world tour, and. Is almost the, the day before they were due to fly out, Ringo collapsed and he had severe tonsillitis. So he was rushed to the hospital to have his tonsils out. But of course, that back then is a good couple of weeks before you recovered. And so they think, okay, we need to find a replacement because there's no such thing as you know a, a Beatles World Tour travel insurance. You had to go ahead with the tour. And so they were advised to get a guy called Jimmy Nickel. Now, Jimmy Nickel was a, a very good, um, technically very, very good drummer, had drummed in jazz and rock and roll. And one of the things I found out when I was working on that book, Finding the Fourth Beatles, in the background of Jimmy Nichol, he would be a session drummer, and there was a, a company called Top Six, and they would do almost like music. So they get put a, a band together and they would cover all the latest hits, but of course, not by the original artists. And he put six records out, six songs out on, on one record. And one of the songs um that Jimmy Nickel had drummed up was Love Me Do. And they'd done an EP of six songs, of Beatles songs, all from 1964. So when he said Jimmy Nickel would be ideal, he'd already played a lot of the Beatles songs. So they grab him, a quick photo call, run through some songs. Next day, he's joining them off on tour. So they go off to Denmark and Holland, over to Hong Kong, and then down to Australia. So for about two weeks, Jimmy Nickel is the first guy ever to be known as the fifth Beatle, and he's living the dream. And there they are, the biggest ever a gathering of fans was in Adelaide in Australia. 300,000 fans on the streets come to see the Beatles. And Jimmy Nichols up there with the Beatles, taking all the praise, all the, all the cheers and everything like that. And he'd done really well. And in fact, one of his little phrases became a Beatles song. And he said, Jimmy, how are you getting on? He said, oh, I'm getting better all the time. And of course on, was it Sergeant Pepper? Getting better was the, was the song, which sort of a, a bit of a tribute to Jimmy Nichols. And then Ringo rejoins them. So there's a, a lovely film clip, which you can see. And it's got John Paul George, Ringo, and Jimmy Nichol all on the balcony, all with the crowd in front of them. And Ringo pretends to um, to strangle Jimmy Nichol, who does the same to Ringo. And you're thinking, what's going through their mind at that exact moment? Because Jimmy Nichol's got this amazing adulation. And then a couple of days later, there's an amazing photograph. And there he is in an airport in Australia, sat on his own, about to fly back to Britain. And he'd gone from a popular drummer in the band in London, part of the most famous people on the on the planet. Everybody knew the Beatles. They were conquering the world. He's got hundreds of thousands of people cheering for him. And then he's on the plane on his own. And then he's back to London. So I think he said it was the best thing he ever did and the worst thing he ever did. Because once you got to the top of the mountain, where'd you go? You can only go down. And unfortunately, he'd had, he joined uh, other groups. He had his own band. Then he joined another, another group, um, toured around the world a bit. Well, years and years ago, he disappeared off the face of the earth, and nobody knows where he is. There were a shooting, he's still alive, and he's got such an amazing story to tell, but he's never told it. Um, So we think possibly he might be in Mexico, could he have lived there before, but we just don't know. So Jimmy Nichol was one of those guys who played drums with the Beatles for about two weeks, and yet, sadly, he has disappeared. But what a story.
1: I will say this, Jimmy Nichol, can you imagine, ladies and gentlemen... You're a drummer. I know you say he was a good drummer, and I'm not going to dispute that in the least. He would have had to have been. But what was he doing immediately prior to them calling him up? Was he like the old Beatles just working the clubs in Liverpool? Or specifically, what was he doing other than some session work and then some local clubbing in in England? Do you know?
0: Yeah, so he was... um... He was London-based, I think he's London-born, and he was playing with Georgie Fame, who had become quite a big star in the UK there, doing a bit of a fusion, a little bit of jazz, um, and not so much, being pop music, and a real nice mixture of sounds, uh, technically very, very good, and you had to be to play with Georgie Fame and the Blue Notes. So they had been on tour. They were playing some of the best clubs in London. So he'd built up a really good reputation. He'd played with a lot of different artists as a session drummer as well, but he was settled into a group. So he was sort of plucked out of Georgie Fane's group, um, who were one of the top groups in London at the time. And because of that style of music he was playing in that group, meant he could cope with just about anything. He could read music which none of the Beatles could. So he, he was very good at, you know, not just with, with the the drum rhythms and stuff. He, he could read and write music. So very, very talented guy. And he could play just about anything you wanted. But so playing with the Beatles, you know, was, was pretty straightforward in a way for him.
1: So the Beatles went to Australia and it was there when three... Hundred thousand people—did they literally come to hear them, or were there just three hundred thousand in the streets cheering? And it wasn't really a concert. Can you explain more about how they contained that many people, and did that many people attend a concert?
0: Right. So, um what they did was they had a parade from the airport through the streets into uh, Adelaide Town Centre, and then they appeared on a balcony. Um, and there's just literally 300,000 people on the streets, came just to see them, just to, to take the uh, take the waving off the, the balcony and take all the applause and the cheering and stuff on the route. So that the concert, you would not have got many people in there. You know, even if they've got I don't know 30,000 or so in there, that would have been it. And in fact, it was a few years ago. I was um, giving some talks on, on a cruise ship. And a lot of the people on there were from Australia. And this lady came up to me and said, you know the story about being in Adelaide? I said, yeah. He said, well, I got tickets to see the Beatles. All my friends were jealous. I think she was about 15 at the time, her and her friend. So her father drove her into Adelaide. When he saw the 300,000 people around there, he said, there's no way you're going into that crowd. And he turned around and he took them home. And she never got to see the Beatles in concert. And she said, I never forgave him for that. And mm. thought, wow, because it was a one-off. That's the only time they, they played down there. But you can understand that, you know, why the father was concerned. You couldn't just let your young teenage girl go wandering in a crowd of that many people to a concert.
1: I totally understand where that father's head was. And in some mm. ways, I got to agree with the man there were too many people yeah. it would have been impossible for him this there was no such thing as the invention of a cell phone he could exactly. not have called her uh, he would have lost control over his daughter and lord only knows it, it would have been yeah. unsafe to put her in there when i was in junior high school and the beatles appeared on the ed sullivan show and i'm a little older than you my parents, mm. I would not have allowed me to go into no. the screaming and shouting arena with these girls <laughs> passing out, feigning, and every other thing yeah. they were doing. No, I don't think uh, I would have had <laughs> I would have had to grow up prior to that. And when I became an adult, I later went and I've seen Ringo live on more than one occasion. And I have seen McCartney with his current band, uh, the band he has now. I've seen them. And I want the ladies and gentlemen out there listening to know that we have a stadium here that is a half a billion dollars with a B. It's outdoors, it's where the football, not what you call football in England, but what (laughs) we call football. It's our football stadium here is a half a billion with a B dollars to construct. And that, ladies and gentlemen, it holds 40-something thousand people. I have never in my life, other than perhaps (laughs) Woodstock, heard of a concert that can go anywhere near holding 300,000. You're certainly not going to do it in an arena. You'll never fit them in there. No, no. It is fascinating what you are telling about the Beatles based upon all this research. And David Bedford, I want to have you describe to people where they can get your books. You have more than one of them. I don't know which (laughs) of those books you're promoting today, but I want to give you the opportunity to state what books are for sale how they get them, and let me tell the ladies and gentlemen right now, David. The website for anybody, no matter where you are, to get a hold of David is David A, as in Apple Bedford B E D F O R D, David A Bedford.com. And by the way, before I let you do that, David, can you please? describe to me a question that I've always had. I remember the Beatles, the Beatles, they started their own record company. You know that I know that the world knows that it was called Apple records. Now, what I want to ask you, David, before we sell your, your books and any other things (laughs) you have for sale, and we're going to do that. So don't you worry, but why, 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 did Apple quit making records under that label Badfinger, the group Badfinger, weren't they they were on oh, Apple yeah. as well. Now, why yeah, and and that's the first thing. What happened to Apple Records? And two, was there any consternation or any conflict if you will between Apple Records of the Beatles and Apple Computers, the big computer manufacturer? Go ahead. Hit me with the answer. Good luck to you, because wow. I've always wondered about that question.
0: Uh, right. So two very good questions. Because Apple, uh, the Beatles set up because obviously they were making so much money and it's coming in, but to save them paying everything in tax, and at, at one point, particularly if you followed the words um, to Taxman by George Harrison, it's absolutely it's, it's brilliant song because yeah. ninety five pence in every hundred pence was going to the taxman. If you were super rich it was called super tax so you could only retain five pence in every pound so they had to do something to instead of it going off into the tax man so they created this business and the idea was a good one which was to save people are getting stuck if they had talent let's bypass all the rubbish and all the complicated stuff with their record companies and let's get you promoted it didn't work it was a bit of a disaster but Apple Records was the only part of it really that worked well, so that they, they promoted um, artists like James Taylor, one of the most successful artists at Apple Records, produced by Paul. Um, George did uh, Jackie Lomax, he worked with him, Paul of course worked with Badfinger as you mentioned. Badfinger again, one of the most successful and what a great, great group as well, uh, absolutely bad, love Badfinger. So the record side of it worked well course, one of the problems was when the Beatles split up, they had to decide what they're going to do with Apple. But Apple Core has continued and still exists to this day. So the Apple Records made sense, but the way they tried to run it didn't make financial sense. So it's better to leave that to the record companies. So Apple Records did work. It, it was good. Produced uh, quite a few good artists. So that deals with that part of it. The second part of your question is far more complicated because there was a legal case that ran for years and years between Apple Core, the Beatles, and Apple Computers. And this went backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. Because of course, at the beginning, when um, Apple Computers was set up, you know, Bill Gates, et cetera, there's no conflict there at all, because all they were doing was producing computers. So that was fine for them to do that, because they weren't in any kind of conflict with what Apple, the Beatles company was doing. But of course, that has changed. Once they started bringing up Apple Music, and downloads and all that kind of thing, suddenly Apple Computer Company are dealing in music. Now there is a conflict and this went to court and they went backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. And the Beatles Apple Court were saying, you cannot do this, there is a clear conflict. In the end, I think the final time, and it wasn't going to be contested any further, Apple Computer Company won the case and were allowed to continue. Because I think their argument was they weren't physically signing artists up to a label and promoting them all they were doing was providing a a platform for artists by any record company around the world to promote their songs so i think that that's how they won the argument but it it really it went on for years and years and for many years beatles music was not available on Places like iTunes as a digital download. That they eventually resolved, and it's only a few years ago when they released all the Beatles music uh, as digital downloads on places like iTunes, it almost broke the internet because the, the music has been downloaded millions and millions of times. Some of the most popular downloads are Beatles songs, which is incredible. We're talking about a band that split up in 1970, and only brought out records between nineteen sixty-three and nineteen seventy. And yet they're still some of the most popular downloads around the world.
1: I have absolutely no doubt about that. It is a remarkable tale, ladies and gentlemen, and it is by David A. Bedford. And you can reach him at the website, Davidabedford.com. His original research that he has done has uncovered people. Stories and events that no other author or historian has ever discovered. That's why I am so excited that I have the honor of placing this young man out on the interwebs for the whole world to hear because our second largest market, David, other than USA, is the UK. I love the UK audience and to have you on my show is an honor, sir. So tell everybody, what have you got for sale and how are they going to get it? And ladies and gentlemen, he is all over social media. There's so many (laughs) social medias. I don't even want to get into it. We don't have that much time. But let me just say, go to david a ABedford.com. There are links to his social medias, every one of them there. So that will hook you up into his social media. David A. Bedford, the main website. Hit me, David. Tell everybody what time it is and where they're gonna get what you have.
0: Well the best thing is to go to that website that you said, Davidabedford.com, because so I put links to everything from there. So I do a blog. And there'll be like two or three posts on that every week um all over as you say facebook instagram twitter uh and one of the big things we've been doing for the last 12 months is on youtube we've got a and if you want to know i've just been talking about the the emi audition on the 6th of june 62 i put a video up of that last week and it's had over thirty thousand views in a week so we've had we're not far off a million views in 12 months for um the films we're putting out The link to that is on that website as well. So all of my books, you can get them all. So from Liverpool, First Place of the Beatles, the first one, Um, Fab 104, Finding the Four People, And then during lockdown, it's obviously got to do something. I've published three books. So the first one, The Country of Liverpool, which is a part of the Beatles story not many people know, is that a lot of the roots of their music is in country music. And Liverpool had the biggest country in Western scene in Europe during the 1960s, as well as the beat music scene. So the roots of the Beatles are in country. So there's a lot in there. Um, a book with a photographer called Bill Stigman, who photographed the Beatles and many other stars like Jimi Hendrix, etc. Uh, and one book, if you're fancying traveling, that looks at Liverpool, Hamburg, London and New York called The Beatles' Fab Four Cities. So that's not long come out as well. So there's, there's lots out there. So you want to follow the blogs, everything that, that I'm up to. Um, My wife tells me that's where she goes to find out what I'm up to as well. So <laughs> davidabedford.com, that, that, that is the place to go.
1: <laughs> oh, my. And I remember that song <laughs> by, uh, who was it? Was it uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers? Who did, how do you do what you do yeah. to me? That was Jerry and, no, Jerry and the Pacemakers, and one of their yeah. big hits, of course, Everybody Remembers, Don't Let the Sun Catch You Crying. Oh, but what a song. Oh, what a great, great song. Jerry Marsden was his name, yeah. and How Do You Do What You Do To Me, uh, that was actually written by whom, if you know?
0: It was written by a guy called Mitch Murray, uh, and that was the song George Martin wanted the Beatles to release as their first single. They turned it down and insisted on doing Love Me do So George Martin gave it to Jerry and the Pacemakers, uh, and it became their first number one.
1: Oh, boy, it it became their first number one. Well, the boys... I think they made enough money to cover for that mistake, but that still doesn't mean okay. that that, yeah, they did. Okay. And I'm not really crying <laughs> on their behalf, but you know what? That was a mistake. They could have taken it and they'd have had a number one there as well. Agree.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Right, but yeah. What I like a, what a, what a brilliant young man, David Bedford, ladies and gentlemen, our guest For anyone interested in the Beatles, here's your man right here. I would fully recommend this gentleman's website, davidabedford.com. I would recommend any book that this gentleman has written because he puts his heart into it. And you know, back when I was teaching the community college, the evening college, they always used to tell me, David, the best teacher doesn't teach from the book. They teach from the heart, from the heart. Absolutely right. And what you speak, David, is from the heart. And I think the whole world can tell that. Because you love what it is you do.
0: Yeah. And how do I do what I do what I do? How do you
1: do what you do (laughs) for everybody to get those millions and millions of hits coming in? (laughs) Oh, I think it's marvelous. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank our special guest today for coming in here. David A. Bedford. Bedford DavidABedford.com. He is in the United Kingdom. This is Rick Flynn. I am in the USA, in the Midwestern USA. We had a little trouble with our connection today because of the tornadoes and everything that hit in this country yesterday, 24 hours ago. But we made it through. David was patient. I tried my best to be patient. I was so excited about the interview. And finally, finally we were able to get a decent and a respectable connection. David, I apologize for the technical errors no of that were beyond my control, but for heaven's sake, we made it, did we not?
0: We did. It was great fun. Absolute honor to be on your show. Thank you so much.
1: David A. Bedford, if you have time in your upcoming months and years Can I bring you on again at a later date?
0: Oh, of course. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Oh,
1: absolutely. You can count on that. I'm going to bring you on, David. I'm going to bring you on only on the days of the week, David, that end in the letter Y. Other than that, I can't. That's
0: my kind of diary. Right.
1: I can't bring you on on any other day unless it ends in the letter Y, okay?
0: So thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure being on the show. Good night, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. And tune in next time for more from Rick.
1: At this time, I think we better just have you say
0: good night, David.
1: Good night, David. All righty, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. It's been an honor to have this Beetle historian with us today. David Bedford, davidabedford.com is the website. This is Rick Flynn speaking. It's been fun, but I've got to run. On behalf of myself and our special guest, David Bedford, thank you throughout the world for tuning in to this show with this. Brilliant young researcher, author, and student of the Beatles, it appears, for life. You're always going to be learning. He's always going to be loving the work he does. Thank you, David. And we'll see you on the next production, everyone. God bless. Good night.
0: The preceding was a Rick Flynn production. This is your announcer, Chantel Marie speaking.